0: Welcome back to Inspired. I'm Umbreen Khan. We've been talking about the Founding Fathers, mostly in relationship to Christianity. But what about their views of other religions? What do we know, for example, about Thomas Jefferson and his Quran? That's right, his Quran. The author of the Declaration of Independence bought a translation of the central text of Islam for his own library. This begs the question— What did he and the other founding fathers think about Islam and its practitioners? We talked to Denise Spellberg, a historian at the University of Texas at Austin, about her book, Thomas Jefferson's Quran, Islam, and the Founders. I asked her, first off, what did Thomas Jefferson believe?
1: Many historians have devoted themselves to trying to define Jefferson's spiritual life and his belief system. He was born into the Anglican Church, the Church of England, which makes it interesting, really, that he saw the plight of others who, because they weren't part of the established religion, were either persecuted, were persecuted and couldn't participate. Um, Over time, it's fair to say that he was labeled a deist, that is, someone who saw God as more remote, but he never officially renounced his Anglican Uh, affiliation. He did, however, by the time he met Joseph Priestley, the scientist and advocate for Unitarianism, begin to take that form of expression, a religious expression, seriously. We think while Jefferson was still in the White House, maybe around 1804 or so, he began the process of actively reviewing the New Testament. And taking a razor to the parts that he thought wouldn't hold up to a rational test. So he actually excised from the New Testament the miraculous, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection, the virgin birth. He started doing that while president, and he continued to do it after his presidency in 1819 and 20. And the result is. You know, it wasn't ever published as a book. He didn't publicly talk about it. But he corresponded with Priestley and others about this. Jefferson also wrongly predicted that eventually, because Unitarianism basically emphasized the oneness of God and got rid of the Trinity, that it would become the overwhelming faith of the United States. Well, that didn't happen. But what we are left with today, and you can order it now uh, from Amazon, are essentially Jefferson's View of the Bible, um, and it's it's known today as the Jefferson Bible, but it wasn't something he made public or talked to at large. so he was he was, let's say, an ethical Christian. Uh, in part, his deism and Unitarianism uh, informed him to make principal choices that also uh, in his day, caused other Christians to think that he just wasn't Christian enough. He wasn't orthodox enough in his practice. But here was a man thinking about religion really from his student days when he ordered a Koran in 1765 from England uh, to the end of his life when he had taken on the New Testament to try and create a version he could attest to.
0: That's a really, that's a really interesting, um, that's an interesting portrait of Jefferson, a very deeply personal one. And he sounds like someone who's extraordinarily uh, curious, or at least willing to wrestle with uh, traditions or questions and ideas. Uh, I want to learn a little bit more about you just said that he purchased a Quran. Why did he do that? What do we know about why he, he sought to possess or to own a Quran?
1: Well, I think you know, I think your point about him wrestling with the idea of religion and the idea of God and uh, and, and what a moral life was. He saw Jesus certainly as a moral exemplar, is a through line in his life. In seventeen sixty five when he bought that Quran, he was in his twenties and a law student in Williamsburg, Virginia. And we have the record that he purchased the Quran because the Williams, Williamsburg newspaper served as the local bookseller. So they made a note, and it literally says, Jefferson, Sale's Quran, George Sale was the translator. (laughs) And he paid two pounds for it, which... Wow. Yeah, I mean, he was willing to invest. But if we look at the records of the books he was buying at the time, he was buying English poetry, he was buying Blackstone's commentaries on the law. Why? Because he was a law student. And it's likely that his interest in the Quran stemmed from the fact that This particular translation by George Sale, an Anglican, uh, who did it in 1734, straight from the Arabic to English, a first, was the best translation of the Qur'an then available. And it was a publishing sensation for the time. It went through many editions, uh, both in Europe and in England. And, And Jefferson, as a student of law, would have seen the Qur'an as a book of law, rather than a book of Revelation. And I should add that the translation Jefferson bought has a 200-page preliminary discourse in which the author, in a very even-handed way for his time, laid out what Islam is as a ritual, how it in fact does inform law. He had genealogies of the prophet in there that you can fold out. He had a map of the Kaaba, where Muslims are enjoying to worship once, at least uh, during their lifetime. And if Jefferson read that, then he would have had really a very good insight about what it is that Muslims believed. And and more interestingly even than that, he would have gotten for the first time a more even-handed approach to the idea that Sale emphasizes rightly, the translator said, that the central doctrine of the Qur'an is the oneness of God. And Jefferson himself, of course, would come to focus on that particular definition when he grew to embrace Unitarianism.
0: You described how when he went through the Bible with a razor and he was excising portions of it, How? what do we know about how he read the Quran? Were there, are there notes that you have is there a record of how he understood and read the various stories legalistic or parables that echoed stories from the New Testament and the Old Testament?
1: Well, well the possibilities you describe are precisely the kind of data that the research historian wants to find. (laughs) And I desperately wanted to find all of that. And what was particularly vexing is that I found almost none of it. Really? Uh, At a a time in the 1760s, um, when he is taking voluminous notes on people like Locke, he had a common book where he would note down his responses to whatever he was reading. And he did this frequently for important books. We don't have notes of his immediate reaction to the Quran. And that is desperately upsetting to me, but there may be a reason for that.
0: What would and the, the reason, reason be?
1: Well, he bought it in 1765. Five years later, there's a fire at one of his plantations. And he writes to his dear friend that he's lost almost every book and all of his papers. Wow. Now, did he lose the crown? That's an interesting question, because we know that Jefferson's Quran is now in possession of the Library of Congress. Mm. So there are two possibilities. He does mention that he saved a book. Did he save the Quran, or did it perish in the flames and he bought it later when he was in England on United States business, actually talking to a Muslim ambassador there? And then he picked up a second version of Sale's Quran. We certainly know he brought it back with him.
0: Have you seen it? Did you actually get a chance to examine the Quran?
1: Yeah, it was one of the thrills of my life, I have to say. Um, I All you need to do, if it's not on display, and it frequently is, of course, now, um, all you need to do is get a library card, um, and you can do that relatively quickly for the Library of Congress, and then there's a call number. You go to the Rare Books reading room, it's in two volumes, this edition of his, and they will bring it to you. Parts of it are crumbling and yellow. Wow. But you can sit with it and look at it. And I was never so astonished because, of course, it's our national treasure. And, of course, it was the book on which our first Muslim congressman, Keith Ellison, swore his private oath of office on in 2007.
0: Dr. Spielberg, what were the beliefs in our country at that time about Muslims? Were Jefferson's beliefs shared by others?
1: Jefferson represented a minority voice for inclusion and what today we would term religious pluralism that, that would have included Muslims and Jews and Catholics. At the time, the majority view among a majority of Protestants who were American is that America should be Protestant in some way. Now, Protestants among themselves, there was a lot of debate about which sect of Protestantism should be the established religion. And it's more about Protestants not being at each other's throats, that we have this legislation, for example, banning a religious test in the Constitution and ordering free exercise, and that there not be a state-established religion. That's because the Protestant majority mostly couldn't decide among themselves, and so seeming to extend equal rights to all Protestants was part of the process. But amidst those debates, there were people like Jefferson, who made universal arguments for inclusion of non-Protestants, including Catholics, Jews, and Muslims. And he wasn't alone, Jefferson wasn't alone. Madison was right there with him. And even George Washington talked about the fact that when he needed laborers, he said, I don't care what their religion is, I don't care where they come from, as long as their work is good.
0: Did Jefferson know any Muslims, I'm curious?
1: Well, he met Muslims. He met the Muslim ambassador from Tripoli and London personally and negotiated with him about our shipping in the Mediterranean, he and John Adams. And was he aware of
0: the religious beliefs of many who were captured, imprisoned and enslaved and sold in the United States who were followers of Islam or known as Mohammedans as they were back then?
1: Yeah, an excellent question and a deeply tragic contradiction He was writing about equality and inclusion for Muslims. In a theoretical way, seemingly, he doesn't seem to have recognized, although we may find out more about this, that there were perhaps 10 to 15% of the enslaved West African population who were practitioners of Islam. Jefferson is writing for a future in which... Muslims are conceived as citizens who are white. Because in 1790, the first immigration law said that you had to be free and white.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this would have excluded persons who were Muslim, even on his own plantation. He may well have owned a Muslim, slaves of Muslim heritage and not known that. It's interesting to say also that Washington... George Washington, we know, did own slaves who were Muslim, largely because of their names. And two of the names recorded in Washington's tax lists are Fatima or Fatima and Little Fatima, the name of the prophet's daughter. So we presume they were probably of Muslim heritage. So here's the irony. Jefferson thinks that people of all religions, including Muslims explicitly, should have civil rights. But he doesn't realize the contradiction. He is, in fact, a slave owner and someone who denigrates blacks in his notes on Virginia. And although he tried early on to abolish the slave trade in the Declaration of Independence, that paragraph didn't survive the cut. So on the one hand, he's a champion of Muslim freedom. On the other, he's potentially the owner of Muslim slaves. And in fact, his ambit of freedom, religious freedom, doesn't extend to slaves.
0: And I'd be curious what your thoughts are. If Jefferson were here today, what would he think of the Islamophobia that many Muslims in America grapple with? And the the Islamophobia that has become such a feature in so many political campaigns and many going as far as encouraging religious tests for holding higher office? What do you think Jefferson would think today?
1: I think Jefferson would think that he, in fact, would be pleased to see Muslims represented in Congress. We have three now, but across the country, there are Muslims who have run for and won local and state offices. I think that would please him. I think that would be the almost perfect end to his prediction of inclusion for Muslims. But I think it would have taken some reckoning for him to understand that those Muslims were of African, African African-American, or female uh, incarnations. I think that would have brought him up short. You know, he didn't include women Mm -hmm. in the mix when he was talking about Muslims. And he surely didn't think about Muslims as black. And in the same sort of notion of citizenship or religious equality or rights for them. But we've lived to see that day. Thomas Jefferson got part of it right. He got right the principle that religious freedom must be extended to everyone. And with that goes political equality. What he got wrong was race. But what he got right was a, a blueprint for religious pluralism that explicitly included Muslims. It gave us a template to do better and to be even more inclusive and specific regarding race and gender.
0: Dr. Spalberg, can I ask you a personal question? What what drew you into this
1: area of study as a historian? What I noticed is that the books that had been written about American views of Islam in, in the early part of our country's history, were written by American historians who didn't have background in Islamic history, and that the predominantly negative views of Islam and Muslims from the 18th and 19th centuries were just repeated by these historians without interrogating them, and without attempting to find, I think, the exception to a dominant negative paradigm. And I began to find Jefferson and others making statements about the inclusion and the rights of Muslims, and I traced that arc back to Europe, and I found exceptions to the rule, and a blueprint for American pluralism that includes Muslims that I didn't expect to find, but it was there. And I think part of the reason others didn't find it earlier is because they actually didn't look for it. Yeah, know, there's a tendency when you hear the negativity today, or when you look at the documents from the 18th and 19th centuries, to see all of it as a pattern with no exceptions, with no qualification, with no nuance. And the job of the historian is to try to read every page and find that nuance. That was Denise
0: Spellberg, a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of Jefferson's Quran, Islam, and the Founder. That's all for this week's episode. If you missed any portion, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or using the podcatcher of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there... Help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find our show. Our closing music is by Audio Binger. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Lauren Marco. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Ambreen Khan. Wherever you are, friends, remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.